Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our Minister Katrina is on leave this weekend, so we are very happy to welcome back the Reverend Dr. Cathy Galloway to lead our worship this morning. Um, just a wee update on the information on the front of our order of service. Uh, it's difficult to keep up with Cathy. Things move on very quickly. Um, Cathy honestly believed when she retired as head of Christian Aid Scotland that she was going to get lots of time for writing. But she's now been called back as co-leader of the Iona community. And so life has taken a different turn and she's back in the fray. But we are very glad that she's with us this morning. Thank you, Cathy. <coughs> Everything we need to follow the service this morning, including the words of all our hymns, are on our printed orders of service. Thank you, Anne, and um, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back with you all again uh, today. I thought I was here last year, but Anne informed me it's actually two years ago. <laughs> so this is this is a. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the kind of uh, mental span I have where everything uh, seems to go at double speed. <laughs> but um, it's lovely to be here on this this morning. And today um, I invite you into a quieter space uh, and to be present uh, in real time uh, in, the, in the presence of one another and in the presence of God. Lord Jesus, we wait for the good news of your coming. <coughs> Into a world that affirms men and women as equally human. Into a world that recognizes both male and female, created in the image of God. Where power lies not in putting one another down, but in building relationships of love, trust and respect. Lord Jesus, we wait for your coming. Come so that your light may shine in our darkness and your glory shine through the lives of the women and men everywhere. Amen. <coughs> we sing the hymn on your sheet. We reach for a welcome. Oh, 
Let us pray. We draw near to the light of Christ, who came to expose what is hidden in darkness, to deliver those suffering in silence and shame, and to bring freedom from fear. Where there is separation, there is pain. And where there is pain, there is a story. And where there is a story, there is understanding and misunderstanding. Listening and not listening. May we, separated people, estranged strangers, unfriended families, divided communities, turn toward each other and turn toward our stories with understanding and listening, with argument and acceptance, with challenge, change and consolation. Because if God is to be found, God will be found in the space between. God of yesterday, we knew you then. Your promises, your words, your walking among us. But yesterday is gone. And so today we are in need of change. Change and change us. Help us see life now, not through yesterday's stories, but through today's. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.
So I think there are some young people up the back here. Um, good morning to you too. Um, I have a question uh, that maybe one of you will have an answer to. Have any of you met the Queen? No. I wonder if there's anybody else in this room who has met the Queen. Is that, this is not, you know, it's not impossible. <laughs> has anybody here met the Queen? You have met the Queen. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, he, he was receiving an honour, was he? Very good. So this, um, this is something that, a, a place that people often meet the Queen um, if they've been given a special honour um, and the Queen invites them to the palace or to Holyrood Palace or uh, somewhere else and uh, and gives them the honour. Has anybody else, as well as the Queen, there are other members of the royal family who uh, engage in, in um, uh, meeting with, with uh, people in, in uh, Britain and Ireland. Has anybody else met any other members of the royal family? Okay. <coughs> um, so the question, I, I mean, because they do, you know, they, they meet a lot of uh, people and they travel around a lot. So I want to ask uh, the, the young people back here, what is the Queen like? What does the Queen do? Yes. I forgot. You forgot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much nothing but sit around and be rich. Okay. <coughs> okay. Any, anybody else got any ideas about what a queen does? They used to run the country, but not anymore. Okay. It's a, it's a wee while now since they ran the, the country. Um, but they, you're right, they used to run the country. And they used to... Uh, uh, they used to f be involved in fighting wars, sometimes, not a, for, a, a, for a long time. Uh, they actually went into battle. Um, Hollywood uh, <coughs> managed to, uh, to keep going by making films about kings and queens that mostly went into battle. Um, and... Uh, mostly were, were uh, successful in their battles. Um, what other kinds of things do kings and queens do? Anybody got any? Uh, Grown-ups can help with this, please. <laughs> yes? Also, they That's a very important thing. They write letters when people become 100 to congratulate them. And, you know, um, so it's an honour to get a letter from the queen. Yes. They give money. Do you want to say a wee bit more? No, okay. Uh, I think the main time I'm aware of the Queen giving money, <laughs> rather than the other way around, <laughs> um, is uh, something called Monday money. And that's an old tradition that on, on the Thursday of Holy Week, the Queen goes and meets some very elderly people uh, and gives them a gold coin. This is a very, it goes back a long, long way, an old tradition. So the Queen uh, writes letters and gives a little money to, to, um, to people. Um, and in the past, kings and queens fought wars and ran the country. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that kings and queens... Parliament. Opening Parliament? Okay, in this country, the, the Queen opens Parliament. It's kind of a ceremony, a ritual. 
uh, that marks the opening of our Parliament each year. Yes. They award honours, yes, and we heard about um, David Ferguson being given an honour um, from the Queen. Uh, and it's just a way of marking special people, in, or people who have done special things in our society. Um, <clears throat> and there are kings and queens in many countries in the world. Uh, kings and queens in Scandinavia. Um, they're probably a bit... A uh, bit harder to identify because they tend often to have ordinary jobs and take the bus, you know, around the place. It doesn't happen like that here. Um, <clears throat> but there are other parts of the world as well where there are kings and queens and there's a long tradition of that. Um, so here's another question. And uh, any of the children or any of the adults can answer this. Does the Queen have any power? What kind of power does the Queen have? Yes. Okay, richness. I think the Queen is the richest person in this country, or almost the richest person. Royalty. And what is royalty? A very good question. Okay, so uh, kings and queens very often have the power of wealth, of, of riches, of money, and uh, in the queen's case of lots and lots of works of art and, and uh, palaces and property. Um, so there's a lot of uh, wealth, but, but I guess, you know, you have to spend a lot keeping these going. <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, she's got power through the platform she has that yes. she says things that you listen to and people report it and you know mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So she has a big, a big platform that she can stand and, you know, make speeches on, or uh, very often, uh, the, the, probably the most famous one is the Queen's speech on Christmas Day when uh, the Queen talks to everybody in the country and sends a Chris Christmas message. Uh, and when I was a child on Christmas Day, we did not get to open our Christmas presents <laughs> until after the Queen's speech, <laughs> which actually I think was quite a, a you know, that was quite hard. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I've always felt a slight grudge against the Queen's speech. <laughs> But uh, the Queen can speak to many people, um, not just in, in Britain, but in other, other places in the world. So she can uh, have influence, uh, the power of influence. Is there any other kind of power that the Queen has? She has the power to dissolve Parliament. Yes, yeah, she has the power to dissolve Parliament. Um, and that's a, a historic thing. And... It would be very surprising if she did that, because probably the next thing that would happen is that she would be removed from the throne. <laughs> um, but it sometimes does happen. Uh, maybe about 30 years ago, uh, the Queen removed the Prime Minister of Australia from his, from his job. And that was a big scandal. Uh, uh, and uh, it nearly caused Australia to... Uh, to leave the Commonwealth. Um, so it's a power that's there but is not used. Well, it, this is a good question um, uh, because her ambassador or her, her, uh, her governor general thought that the Australian Prime Minister was not doing a very good job. That's the bottom line. Um, but it was, it was a big mistake, actually. And our Queen doesn't make many mistakes because she's very, very, very careful. Um, <clears throat> so she has the power to dissolve Parliament. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, she has the power to command people to do certain things. Um, and these powers work mostly because she never uses them. Uh, and 
this Sunday um, in the Christian calendar is the last Sunday of the Christian year before we go and start again with Advent and looking forward to Christmas. And this Sunday in the Christian calendar across the world, Christians are thinking this Sunday because it's called uh, the, the Sunday of Christ the King. <coughs> the first Sunday next week is when we start to think about Jesus who came as a baby in weakness came as a baby to a refugee family under great threat. Uh, and, but, but this is the day when we think about Christ the King and Christ the King of Heaven. So if we're thinking about Christ, about Jesus as a King, what kind of a King was Jesus? Did he have power and wealth? He had no wealth. Could he dissolve Parliament? There wasn't a Parliament back then. Um, could he impact the the way that his country was run? No. Did he have an army? No. Could he give people uh, orders of the British Empire? Could he give them honours? So he was a very different kind of king. What kind of king was Jesus, do you think? When we call him a king, what kind of king was Jesus? Hmm? A religious king, maybe. I think that uh, what the Bible tells us and what the church tells us is that Jesus, we talk about Christ, the king of human hearts. And Jesus had a different kind of power because it was, a, it was the power of love. And the power of love, uh, Christians believe, is stronger than any other power in the world. This is what Christians have always believed that the power of love is often challenged, often you know, uh, pushed away, um, but in the end, the power of love, like the power that Jesus showed, is stronger than any other power, and it will always come back. So let's, let's pray um, about Christ the King. Lord Jesus, we give thanks that you came in weakness as a tiny baby um, and that you lived and died to become the king of our hearts and our lives and our vision and our hope. We give thanks that your power is not the power of armies or weapons or the power of gold, or the power of influence or political uh, power, that your power is the power to change lives and to set us walking in a new direction. And we give thanks and we believe that that power of love is the strongest power in the world. Amen. So we're going to sing a song, When I Receive the Peace of Christ. And it's about the kind of uh, dignity that we often think of as being only for kings and queens, but it's actually the kind of dignity that... Uh, that is for everyone in, in God's kingdom. When I receive the peace of Christ.
Our scripture reading for today is first from the Old Testament, the book of Esther. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha and Abagtha, Zethar and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty for she was fair to behold. Mm. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. At this the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Oh. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, mm. Not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the Queen's behaviour, will rebel against the King's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the King, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be altered, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, vast as it is, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the officials, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, declaring that every man should be master in his own house. And now from the New Testament, the book of John. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. 
everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. May God bless this reading and aid us in our understanding. Amen. Today, on this last Sunday of the year, in the Christian calendar, on the Feast of Christ the King, I want to begin by talking about a Queen. A few years ago, I was invited to preach on this text from the Book of Esther in a church in Edinburgh. When the time came for the passage to be read, it soon became clear that the woman who was reading it had not read it in advance and was in fact hearing it for the first time as she read it aloud. As she read on, the pitch of her voice became higher and higher and her tone became increasingly indignant until finally the whole congregation could not do anything but laugh at the outrage she was clearly feeling. Well, a 21st century European congregation may hear an ancient story like the one told in the book of Esther very differently. In particular, the women hear it differently. Context is crucial, and what the present-day congregation in Edinburgh heard was a horror story of misogyny and violence and treachery. I don't know how familiar all of you are with the whole of the book of Esther, uh, which could be subtitled The Bad Wife and the Good Wife. Um, but let me remind you briefly of this fascinating part of it. It begins, as we heard, with a banquet held by the Persian king Ahasuerus for all the men in his capital city of Susa. He is the most powerful world man in this huge imperial world. He is greedy, willful, narcissistic and irrational, and he loves flattery. He sounds curiously familiar. On the seventh day of feasting, the king decides that he wants to show off the beauty of his queen Vashti. He sends for her to come, a lone woman, into a gathering of thousands of drunken men to be put on show as his most prized possession. And it's interesting to go back and read the whole of the first chapter of the book of Esther because it makes it very clear how copious the alcohol was. So here is Vashti, the prototype of a modern trophy wife. We aren't told how Vashti felt at this command, only about what she did. She refused to come. To use a familiar phrase, she just said no. Vashti's refusal to comply infuriates the king and is perceived by the, ma the men as a grave threat to the dominance of every husband in the empire. 
Ahasuerus and his courtiers appear as hapless buffoons before the calm strength of Vashti and by implication of all of their wives. No revolution was going to happen here. The king laid down the law. Every husband was to be the master of his home and spoke with final authority. Vashti was banished and disappears. Vashti got off relatively lightly. It does not say that she was killed. She simply disappears. Elsewhere, and repeatedly, in various books of the Old Testament, women are sexually assaulted, raped by strangers, raped by their brothers and other male relatives, gang-raped to death, and offered for sex by their male relatives. Women are used as sexual shields and decoys by their husbands. They are abducted, kidnapped, married against their will, sold into slavery, into concubinage and into prostitution by their male relatives. They are forced to act as surrogate mothers and they are beaten, humiliated and killed by abandonment, starvation, violence and acts of war. This is all over the, the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Women are commanded with all the authority that male church leaders can muster to obey their husbands, to submit to male authority and to keep silent. Now, that's not a very subtle or nuanced description of what the New Testament has to say about the relationship between men and women. but the uses to which Paul's teaching, for example, have been put, have not been very subtle or nuanced either. No religion has a monopoly on taking, upon itself, taking it upon itself to offer divine authorization for violence against women. And nor for Christians is this an issue of merely historical concern. Men who abuse women still routinely call upon the Bible as their authority and justification in every Christian country in the world. Some of you may have heard the Radio 4 service this morning, which Anne conducted a wonderful service um, with testimony from women in Brazil and India and Malawi. And all of these were women who had suffered in situations where, um, where the, the Bible and the church were called upon as justification for violence. Deep down, thoughtful Christians know this. We are living with a terrible legacy and I don't want to go into distressing details of the kinds of extreme and persistent violence that women have experienced. Nor do I want to go into the sorry history of how the church has routinely denied, ignored, covered up and protected abusers. And that fact is sad and shaming for all of us who care both about women and about the Church of Jesus Christ, who befriended women, relied on them, raised them up, treated them with dignity, and recognised their spiritual aspirations. It's a sad and shaming fact for all of us who care about children too, because violence against women ultimately cannot be separated from violence against children. Women who suffer abuse are often, as in the, old, in the Old Testament, and still in many parts of the world, actually of an age we would consider to be well within childhood. The 12-year-olds who are married off. The 13-year-olds who are trafficked. Violence against women 
has a hugely damaging effect on her children and often includes or leads on to child abuse. And the fear of what will happen to her children makes women more vulnerable to threat. Violence against women and children is endemic across the globe. And the British Medical Association has named it as one of the major health hazards in this country. Nor is gender violence restricted to women and girls. About one in six people who experience one or more of the many forms it takes are boys or men. Of these disproportionate numbers are boys, gay men and transgender people. Gender violence is not about sexuality, though it often takes a sexual form. It is about the abuse of power. One of the characteristics displayed by sex offenders against children is the capacity to distort religious teachings, texts and values to offer spurious legitimization for abuse. While this distorted thinking is not within the power of the church to control completely, it does raise grave questions about how approaches to scripture can reinforce this. The Bible contains within it many stories which constitute a catalogue of the most appalling sexual crimes against women and children and sometimes against other men. And these have been cited by offenders to justify incest, rape and other forms of sexual molestation. An overly undiscriminating approach to scripture has often meant a reluctance to name these for what they are. That is, they are stories of sexual abuse. But until we're prepared to do so and be very clear about it, there will be those who claim that their actions are justified because it's in the Bible. This is our holy book, but we have read it with blinkers. We have read it through the eyes of powerful and entitled men and it has materially affected the way that survivors have been treated for centuries. From a, pastor, from a pastoral perspective, the Bible is by no means universally good news for women. Christians believe that gender is a gift of God and should be experienced as joy for humankind. When gender becomes a weapon for oppression, then something is badly wrong. Theology and biblical hermeneutics are key spheres where gender is explored, and the voices of church leaders across the world are powerful in shaping social norms and practices. The scriptures do not hide, but rather reveal some of the worst examples of the sin and tragedy of gender injustice. They give us stories around which to gather, to lament and sorrow for what is still sometimes the reality of our lives. These may be, for some of us, as they have sometimes come to be known, texts of terror. And they do not allow us to pretend that all is well. There are other texts too, which demonstrate the ways in which women have often been urged to behave in particular ways, as we heard this morning, but also uh, in the New Testament, to be quiet, to be submissive, to be subordinate. Texts such as these also need to be interpreted with care, as texts which echo the cultures in which they were composed, as texts which also reveal something of the tragedy of a humankind divided at its heart, and as texts which are never read well if they are used to justify violence or injustice now. And such texts need to be judged in the light of those other texts which, rather than reflect the default ways in which human beings live out gender, actually say something different 
and challenging and which offer us a renewed imagination and a new hope. It is truly significant that there are no stories of Jesus which encourage or support the ways of understanding gender which has become dominant in a world of gender injustice. But rather, there are stories which suggest that women are flesh of my flesh. Jesus is also a remarkable man, subverting traditional understandings of masculinity. He weeps for his friends and his community. He rejects the path of retaliative violence. After he is betrayed, he is not assertive or vocal. He is silent and passive and yet unafraid. He dies the death of a slave. And as Paul Memory put it in his letter to the Philippians, he did not grasp at equality with God. In John's Gospel, in the passage we heard this morning, Pilate says to Jesus, So you are a king? And Pilate's question is laced with irony, for Jesus, captured and shackled, abandoned by his followers, mocked, looks so little like an icon of manliness, never mind of power. But the Gospel writer wants the reader to understand that Jesus is indeed the first example of a new humanity. And part of this newness is a renewal of what it means to be male or female. Jesus is a champion of a redeemed understanding of gender, a new humanity. If any of us need new gender models, if gender justice can only come as masculinity is itself renewed, if boys and men need to, and the rest of us need to recover gender as something personally challenging and transforming, then Jesus is the model. Reading stories such as that of Vashti is an act of remembrance. I cannot read these texts as holy scripture. I cannot say, you know, this is the word of the Lord, in the sense that I cannot share their ethical perspectives. I dissent from the values that they portray, and I imagine that, you know, most of us, or all of us do. But their retrieval in this way is a memorial to the biblical women whose stories they tell mourning their suffering and making a determined commitment to oppose such gender violence in our own time. The continuing influence and importance of the Bible, of faith communities and faith leaders worldwide, both for good and for ill, is one of the reasons for the foundation of Side by Side, a faith movement for gender justice. This movement originated with Christian Aid and is active in Scotland. And the wonderful uh, service this morning drew its inspiration from the work of Side by Side and marked the beginning of the yearly worldwide 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. <coughs> being in solidarity, being side by side with survivors of gender-based violence must lead us to speak out clearly and act with courage. And we are not alone. We are part of a community which prays and weeps and sings with us. We are followers of a different kind of king. Amen. So now we sing the song on the sheet, Great God, your love has called us here.
let us pray. God of hope, on this day we think of justice for women. We give thanks for the gifts of leadership and contributions of women in all areas of life and society. We pray for an end to violence and harassment and for safety for all. We pray for gender justice and respect for the rights of women through our prayers. Let us pray for the pastors of BMS Partner, the Albanian Baptist Union, including Andre, Enea, Valon, Fridi, Jenai and Tony. <coughs> Nearer to home, we pray for St Andrew's Baptist Church, St Mary's Community Church, St Ninian's Community Church, and Stenhouse Baptist Church. We would ask you to guide each of them in the work they are doing. Let us give thanks for our own congregation at HBC. And today, pray for Caris and all she means to us, for Jeff and Carol, and bless them in their life's journey. Amen. Loving God, we commit our thoughts and emotions. We commit our work and play. We commit our purse and prayers to you in the service of your people, right here in our community and wherever there is need. In the name of Jesus and in the name of love. Amen. Our closing hymn is on the sheet, The King of Love My Shepherd is...
the ground of all being. Hold us in the depths of your love. Take us deep into the heart of your covenant and let your blessing go with us now. Thank you.